Human factors uh, are so critical in these environments. You can't come up with processes and procedures that will mitigate all risk. It's just not possible. So I'm much more interested in those human elements of, of how do we survive and how do we thrive? How do we enjoy our careers? How do we have long, meaningful careers in these sorts of environments? This is Kevin Grove. This is Gary Keane. This is Ian Snape, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. We find ourselves in early June, and this is going to be the last episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast for Season 7. Whatever you may be doing, maybe you're still out there skiing some springtime snow on volcanoes or the east side of the Sierra. Maybe you're just chasing that endless ribbon of perfect single track, or maybe you're paddling in the snow melt that you enjoyed carving up this winter. Whatever you're doing, we hope you enjoyed Season 7 of the Avalanche Hour podcast this year. Um, I know for me, I had a great time talking to so many talented and smart individuals within our community, and I really appreciate all the help from my friends that I got with this podcast. Um, So I just wanted to start out by saying... uh, First, thank you to all the contributing hosts this season. That would be Dom Baker, Brooke Edwards, Sean Zimmerman-Wall, Matthias Valker, and Wesley Gregg. Thank you so much for the help. And we couldn't do it without the help of our producers, the talented Wesley Gregg. And big thanks to Cameron Griffin stepping up big time this season. Um, Thanks for making us sound good, fellas. I would also like to give a big shout out to the supporters of the show. Uh, This show couldn't happen without the support of advertising and supporting partners. So, of course, first up, our title sponsor, VEASAN Avalanche Control. Thank you to Roz and Eddie and the whole team at VEASAN Avalanche Control for your continued support of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'd also like to thank Athletic Greens, Six Point Engineering, Cal Topo and Backcountry Nav. Big thanks to you all. If you, your organization, or your company would like to help support the show, please reach out to find out about advertising opportunities for next season. You can hit us up at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Looking to the future, my vision for this podcast has always been to provide a platform for people to share experiences, ideas, and conversations within our community. We'd like more people to get involved, and we'll be working this summer on streamlining a process for more people to share their conversations they may be having with the greater community. What are the conversations you're having on the skin track, on the chairlift, or around the rigs after a ride? Are you an avalanche professional that would like to share and air a conversation you're having with a coworker, mentor, or touring partner? 
If you'd like to learn more about these opportunities, please reach out. The Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Queued up on today's episode, we've got uh, several different conversations for you. First off, um, I'd like to thank Dara Miles for getting in touch with us. She listened to the podcast episode about the Avalanche Train Exposure Scale and wanted to reach out and share uh, some of the things that she's doing with the Colorado AIDS Project. Um, So first off, we're going to hear from Dara Miles about the Colorado AIDS Project, and then we're going to jump into a conversation with Gary Keene and Ian Snape Um, who are running a resiliency scan for our industry, for the snow and avalanche industry. Um, And you're going to hear all about what a resiliency scan is and who's putting this on and some of the implications um, of finding out more about how our industry is doing and how we are functioning as individuals and as teams. To round out the hour, we'll be hearing from Kevin Grove, one of the co-chairs of the ISSW 2023 that'll be taking place in Bend, Oregon in October. So super excited to hear about um, some of the planned events for ISSW 2023 and some ways you can save a little bit of money and plan ahead and have the best possible time there. Let's jump in with a message from Dara Miles. Hi, Caleb, and thanks for having me on the podcast, and thank you for your interest in the Colorado AIDS Project. So we're a small volunteer organization, and our purpose is to rate Colorado's most popular ice climbs using the Avalanche Terrain Exposure Scale. I founded the project in 2019 for a couple of reasons. First, I had been climbing in Canada that year and learned about AIDS, and I thought, wow, this is a great idea. Why don't we have this in Colorado? Surely somebody's doing this. Well, it turns out somebody was, Beacon Guidebooks, but for backcountry ski tours. So there was nothing for ice climbing. Plus, I started the project as a way to honor the memory of a friend of mine who was killed in an avalanche. We had just finished climbing a multi-pitch route when the snow started coming down and swept her away. And I wanted something good to come out of that. So everybody knows we have a lot of avalanches down here. And it's not just getting the backcountry skiers and snowmobilers. Climbers are the third largest user group with avalanche fatalities in Colorado. Since the state started keeping records, and I think that was back in the 50s, 33 ice or alpine climbers have been killed in avalanches here. That's about one every two years. So if we can give climbers a tool to help them make better route choices when the forecast is considerable, I think that's a good thing. Plus, having the eights ratings out there visible to climbers, I think will help raise avalanche awareness generally and help us promote a safer climbing culture, one where more climbers carry gear and take avalanche courses. And that's not the culture right now. So, like I said, um, I started working on this in 2019, but it was just me back then. And then COVID hit, and I kind of lost steam. 
but I picked it back up again last fall, and we are now an organization of three, myself and two IFMGA guides uh, with a lot of knowledge and experience. I've got Mike Susie on the Front Range and Pat Ormond in the San Juans, and these guys are my experts. I am not an expert. I am just a mediocre ice climber with a little time on my hands and a desire to make this thing work. So, you know, we've really just started and we have a long way to go before we can push any ratings out to the climbing public. And because we're analyzing ice climbs, GIS mapping is not going to get us all the way there. So we have to rely more on hard assets and local knowledge. We need aerial photos, avalanche path maps, and as complete an avalanche history for any given route that we can come up with. And we need experienced climbers and guides who are on the routes on a regular basis and know the terrain intimately. Those are the people who will do the analysis and then peer review the ratings. We've picked one area to start with, a place with several three-star climbs that's popular with recreational climbers, and that also has a fair bit of avalanche activity. Next up um, is gathering materials and human power for the analysis itself. Once the ratings are assigned and peer-reviewed, we'll probably publish them on the route descriptions on Mountain Project. It would be great to have this done by the start of the 2023-24 season, but that might be overly ambitious, but that's kind of what we're shooting for. The problem is my experts and the people they're recruiting actually have real jobs, so uh, we'll see. It's a volunteer effort. If your listeners would like to know more, they can email us at Project at gmail.com, and that's A-T-E-S. And we also have a Facebook page, Colorado Eights Project, uh, which has a little bit of content, mostly explaining what the Eights is. So get in touch. Um, thanks again, Caleb, and keep up the good work. Dara, thanks for taking the time to reach out and share with the community the project that you're working on, the Colorado AIDS Project. Nice work. Keep it up. And next, we're going to jump in with an interview with Gary Keene and Ian Snape. Hope you enjoy. Gary, Ian, welcome to the show. How are you all doing today? Great. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Of course. Uh, Gary, you reached out to me a few weeks ago, and we're hoping to come on to the show to talk a bit about a resiliency scan that you and Ian are working on throughout the avalanche industry um, with the hopes of presenting some of the findings from these surveys at the upcoming ISSW in the fall. Tell us a little bit more about your your background. We'll start, we'll start with you, Gary, but Talking about your background in the industry, guiding, forecasting, avalanche education, who's Gary Keene? Mm. Originally a Northeast ski bum, as well as uh, going through college and grad school. So I was both racing and telemarking in the backcountry of New York and New England, and uh, as well as working as a research engineer studying ice and snow mechanics. So that also 
was kind of the start of my interest to learn about avalanches as well as guiding skills. And probably one of the more significant things to me I realized in hindsight was I was positioning myself to learn from really inspirational, skilled people. And that's kind of been a pattern for me. Um, so during that time, I took my first AMGA course. That was way back in 1993. And then I moved to Tasmania to work with the Australian Antarctica program. And that's when I first met Ian. So he's one of those inspirational people for me and that he's a master in accelerated learning in pretty much any topic or context. Um, while I was there, I shifted from being a scientist to being a field leader, which is much more like a guide and looking after other scientists at remote camps. I was definitely missing skiing and so relocated over to New Zealand. And there I pretty much got purely into guiding. Um, I was guiding all around the globe and I ended up finishing up my guiding qualifications there. Then early 2000s, I kind of tapered out of the alpine and the high altitude guiding to focus on what's been my real passion, which is snow and ski guiding of absolutely every sort. Um, so during that time, I've been employed as a ski patroller and I still work as a forecaster, educator and guide. Um, still love all types of skiing. I find the heli ski industry is my biggest challenge mentally and physically. Um, and so I like challenges. So I um, do that both in New Zealand and in Alaska. Um, during all this time, a lot of these inspirational, skilled people that I position myself with um, are no longer with us. And some, it was due to their decisions in avalanche terrain. 2016, before our New Zealand heli-ski season, I talked about the passing of 16 of our colleagues as kind of a, hey, what can we learn from this? Um, the denominator in New Zealand's not big, but there were a few years where there were about 4% of the guides dying a year, which pretty shocking if you think about an industry that you're in and if you want to be in it for over 30 years, your odds are not good unless you do something different. Um, so I learned lots of lessons. I believe they keep me safer. I'm still here. Um, but it's not just the super traumatic things. Um, this season in Alaska, I estimate about 5% of the heli ski guides had significant injuries. Um, that being something that's going to keep them out of work for six to 12 months, out of physical work at least. Um, so still, um, yeah, not, not great odds. And uh, I often question the risk and reward to myself, my friends, my family, um, how I can stay mentally engaged and focused enough to mitigate my risk, um, which is much more than just my physical risk. And I guess a passion for me now is to help in a proactive way my colleagues do the same, uh, both in that team environment and 
hopefully by being a little more public and getting out there with um, the ISSW, this podcast, and uh, look at the industry as a whole. What are we doing well and what can we do better? So a, a proactive approach, I'd, I'd like to revisit that here in a moment, but Ian, maybe first you could introduce yourself and talk about your background in the industry and, and then introduce Frontline Mind as well. Yeah, sure. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm, I'm based in Australia. I, uh, I really have two parallel careers. One as a leader in polar research and the other I think you'd, you'd really describe as a flow junkie, uh, following my passion in outdoor adventures and martial arts. Uh, around about 15 years ago, these two interests started to converge as I developed coaching skills. And uh, that really led me to form a company uh, and, and get out of government research work and, and more into running my own thing. And and I had this really interesting experience. It was it, I remember it quite vividly because it really set me on a different trajectory through life. And it was it was in two thousand and ten. I was uh, an executive in government. Uh, government, had, had the particular government, the Australian government at the time, had made quite a few significant errors in the way that they handled risk after the global financial crisis uh, and the department I was working in uh, was responsible for for four deaths hundreds of house fires all sorts of stuff going on anyway I, I went to the I went to a conference called the risky business conference they had 160 government executives in this conference about risk two days talking about risk and it became apparent to me that they had really no idea how to manage risk the, the government response was to push decision-making right to the top of the tree. They didn't really do anything about distributed decision-making, about who makes decisions in risk, how do you, how do you handle risk. And I thought there's a, there's a major mismatch here between this environment that I play in, the, high, the adrenaline sports, the outdoors, the mountaineering, the skiing, the ice climbing, the ice diving, the martial arts – and how decisions are made over there, and then how decisions are made over here in government. So I, I thought, I'm going to study decision-making in those high-risk environments and see if I can unpack and learn who does what, who survives. And, uh, and so I started a project. I called it the Risky Business Project. It started in 2010, and I started by modelling Gary. Uh, he was a pretty close friend. I'd skied with him a few times. I knew how good he was in the mountains. Uh, he was the right age as well. He'd been doing this long enough that he must have learnt something, otherwise he would be dead. And, and I started modelling, how does he make decisions in avalanche terrain? How does he, how does he make calls? What does he do? Uh, and then from there, I started modelling. Uh, I started working with correctional officers, with police, tactical teams, military, AMBOs, and this is through, through a coaching company at the time. And I started looking for, for common patterns, common ways that people do resilience, how they make decisions, how they handle high-pressure, high-risk environments. Uh, what do they do to recover? Uh, and, then, and then that really led me into the leadership space. So, so I formed a company called Frontline Mind where we really bring all this together and train other people and we've got lots of programs. And um, really the passion for me was this I'm going to call it the reasonably edgy side of frontline work. And, and the reason I guess we call frontline mind is I was 
passionate, I guess, to help those professions and those professionals who have skin in the game with their decision-making. They're working in environments where people do die. People get injured. There are consequences for poor decision-making, for poor leadership, for underinvestment, for not having good systems. And, and the human factors uh, are so critical in these environments. You can't come up with processes and procedures that will mitigate all risk. It's just not possible. Uh, so I'm much more interested in those human elements of, of how do we survive and how do we thrive? How do we enjoy our careers? How do we have long, meaningful careers in these sorts of environments? So that that's that's really my journey into frontline mind and uh, a little bit of a little bit of what I'm passionate about. Ian, could you maybe speak a little bit to um, some findings through some of these resiliency scans that you've done in in other industries, other sectors? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Around uh, around about oh, six or seven years ago now, uh, I spent two years trying to develop a system of capturing insights from people in frontline environments that would help us design programs, improve the way we we respond to the environment that they're in. And I, I, it was very, very difficult to do in a way that doesn't lead people to give you answers that you, that you might sort of expect to find. So I, I stumbled across a company called uh, Cognitive Edge, and the, their their founder Dave Snowden uh, is a is a leader in complexity theory. Uh, I was on a training course with him, and he started to describe something called SenseMaker. Uh, it's a software package that he developed that captures stories. Uh, and then ask people questions about their story. Uh, and this system had really achieved everything I'd spent the last couple of years trying to work out, uh, years, decades ahead of my thinking. Uh, so I, I adapted the SenseMaker program to look at resilience, uh, personal resilience and organizational resilience. And this process begins with a question. Tell us about events, significant decisions, actions uh, that have happened in your workplace. It doesn't lead to good things or bad things. It just says, tell us a story. And then we ask questions about the story. And some of the stories are, are amazing. They're about, uh, you know, we've had this incredible challenge and we came out of it. We saved lives. We did the following. Uh, some of the stories are, are, are horrifying. You know, I, I had this situation where I was driving down the road and, you know, I said to my commanding officer, hey, I've got an uneasy feeling about this. I think that, you know, I think we're going to, you know, we're in, in dangerous territory. Commanding officer says, no, no, don't worry, we'll be right. We drive down the road and we set off an IED and we get blown up. I lost my buddies. Or, uh, you know, I was attacked by prisoners uh, and my my colleagues ran away and left me. Or, uh you know, I'm on the front line as a paramedic and I'm doing the following and I'm attacked by a, by a patient. But more importantly, afterwards, my manager says, uh, I'm the one with the problem because I fought back. I've got anger issues because uh, I, I hit the patient. You know, these are the sorts of stories you start to pull out from these frontline agencies and you go, hang on a minute, what's, what are the real risks here? And in most of the frontline agencies we work with, the biggest challenges are to do with leadership, 
and the relationship with manager and the systems and how people are either supported or persecuted. Uh, and that's that's really what we're working on at the moment, a lot of systemic work around systems. And um, I, I really don't know what the, the status is of, of the avalanche industry. It'll be, it'll be highly patchy. It'll be, depend on which company, which organization, which particular profession you're in. But I want to hear the stories. I want to hear the stories of success, of the, the amazing things that happen in the business, the incredible careers you can have, the, the awesome experiences when you, know, you, you, you take people out if you're a guide and they have one of those, one of those days that just sets them on fire for the rest of their lives regarding you know, being passionate skiers. Um, but also the challenges, you know, the, the, the fatalities, the injuries, the, the lack of support, uh, drug and alcohol, overwork, all of those things. You know, what is the status of the industry? And then how can we support people to make it better? Hmm. Gary, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about kind of your evolution of better understanding of, of stress injuries throughout your long career in the mountains and, and maybe highlight a story or two of, of a personal event that um, perhaps helped you start your way on this journey here to find out more about resiliency and, and uh, why you're involved in this. Sure. I will do the best I can. I think for me, I experience stress in multiple ways. Um, so during my heli ski season, events and depletion due to just getting tired mentally and physically adds up with me, and that creates a distress for me. Um, it's something I can manage, um, but it builds up during the season, and then it maintains kind of a usually a level state there'll be small events or even big events that spike it slightly and i guess through my resilient strategies i've always been able to bring it back to a reasonable level um, but that is balanced by what drives me into the industry which is the fact that i am a critical decision maker and that's what keeps myself and my guests safe and gives us also a good time. And so there's that decision-making that adds a stress that helps me focus and actually perform at a higher level. So um, those are the two things that kind of are balanced out with me. Um, and it's not only me, I'm part of a team. So without a doubt, um, how other people manage events in their life affects me and the whole team. Um, so I think from a resilience point of view, it's important that individuals have strategies to manage their state, but it's also important that the team monitors each other, recognizes how everybody is performing and is able to support them sometimes identify a change in state to each other 
um, in order to keep us in a safe performance zone. Um, and that goes across the scale of time. So, you know, there's a daily cycle, no doubt, but then there's a weekly cycle and without a doubt, the whole season cycle of you know, our three month season. So lots of different components there um, with a lot of uncertainty because we can imagine what the events are going to be, but we always, there's always a little bit of a surprise factor. How have you seen the industry, specifically heli ski industry, um, change in the last, you know, 15 to 20 years in, in terms of talking about this amongst your team, amongst your colleagues? Um, you know, I, I feel like there's becoming more common language and more accepted language around talking, talking through this with your coworkers. Um, have you seen a, a shift in culture throughout your career? Definitely. Um, it, when we first started, the only semi days off were weather days. And um, there's now, an, it's acceptable to say, I'm tired, I need a break. And yeah, different people use different terminology. Yeah, but I think the big thing is there is more communications that we are human um, and we need to perform at a high level. And to do that, we need to maintain a reserve. And how we do that um, is both individual and team. Um, but to be able to identify it in others and openly express it to each other has changed a lot in the last few years. And that's been a really good strategy to make the industry safer. So let's talk a little bit about what this scan looks like and, and um, maybe fill in some gaps here. Has, has this been utilized, this specific resiliency scan been utilized amongst certain um, teams or ski patrols or guide organizations within the avalanche industry? And how does this current survey uh, differ a little bit in terms of looking at the industry as a whole? I think... I don't think it has been done before, and I don't think anything like this has been done before. So this is a bit of a follow-on from your last you know, question. Has Have things changed in the industry? And I believe they have. Um, I don't believe there's been really an industry-wide scan to say, hey, at the end of a season, let's take a snapshot and try to get an idea of where the industry is at without any presumption of what we're going to find. So um, any other survey that I've done has been quite targeted. Um, and this one is not. Um, what we'll find is really a mystery and how many people we'll get it out to in which organizations is even a bit of a mystery, but our intention is to get it out to as many people as possible so that it's not that you didn't know about it, but if you didn't take it, it's, it was your choice that you knew about it, but 
decided not to, didn't have the time to, didn't care to. Um, so the, our intention is to get it out widely known. Um, it only takes 10 to 15 minutes to do. And so we're hoping we'll get a pretty good industry-wide scan of um, what it's at and then see, put it out there to the industry so the industry can do whatever they choose um, to make it more robust. Mm -hmm. I just took the survey yesterday and, and found that it was a it was a great time to do it, like at the end of the season in a, a really nice way for me to take some reflective time to, to think about a couple close calls from the season um, and how I, I was or was not supported. I'm, I'm fortunate and work with some highly supportive groups of people. Um, but it, it was, uh, I found it to be a really nice process to kind of wrap up the end of the ski season. Um, so I hope, I hope everybody that's listening to this, who is involved in the industry will decide to take this survey. Um, Ian, maybe you could talk about some ways that you can kind of pick apart some of the pieces of the survey and, um, maybe add value to certain, certain groups of folks or organizations that, that might identify as, as working for a certain organization. How will you uh, decipher some of this info that you gather. Yeah, I think there's, there's two parts to it. One of them is the themes from the stories, the narratives uh, of what goes on, and we can analyze that. We can, we can see what are the common themes that are happening in the industry, and we can we can break that down by by demographic. It could be forecasters, educators, guides, ski patrol, you know, what are the sorts of themes in each of those industries? Uh, we can we can do this by company. Some of the bigger companies have, have said, hey, look, yeah, stick us down. If we get enough responses from our company, it'll tell us something about how our company is positioned within the industry as a whole. Uh, and, and the same for some of the peak agencies, some of the peak bodies. Uh, they're in there as well. So we can, we can give some insight by... Uh, by, by different sorts of demographics. And then the, ne the next part is the what we call the patterns. What are the patterns that happen with, with the, within those stories? So a pattern, for example, might be uh, patterns of not sleeping well. Uh, following these, these experiences, uh, we ask a question, did, you know, immediately following this, this event that you describe, did you struggle to get to sleep? No, I didn't. I slept perfectly fine. Or yes, I did. I struggled to get to sleep. I, I woke in the night and I woke in the morning. And this is an example of what we call an abstract indicator. Abstract means it's not, <clears throat> it's not so obvious that somebody can just go, yeah, I understand what that means. It means I have to think about it. And, and sleep is an indicator of well-being. If you're not sleeping and events are happening and you don't sleep well after them, it tells you pretty well everything you need to know about well-being. It's such an important indicator. So we can tell about sleep as one example. Uh, another really important indicator is what we call a sense of threat. Did your story reflect a sense of threat? You tick a box, no, it didn't reflect, reflect a sense of threat. I was having a good time, whatever. Or yes, it did. And, it's, and then the question is, it's on a triangle and it says, where was that sense of threat from? Was it from your clients? Was it from your managers or was it from your co-workers? 
And this is a really insightful uh, triangle. We, the patterns we get here in different frontline agencies uh, are incredible. I gave you some examples earlier from the military, from correctional, from, from, uh, from frontline paramedics. Uh, and this varies by organization. It varies by team. Uh, it tells you a lot about leadership. It tells you about where risk uh, resides. You know, where is my sense of threat and what am I doing to, to mitigate that? Uh, and again, that varies a lot. And I, I really don't know what we're going to find from the avalanche industry. Uh, I, I don't know that yet. We, this is like, like Gary said, it's not something we've done before. Uh, other indicators include risk. Uh, are we are we documenting our risks? Do we know what they are? Are we managing them? And sometimes people are managing them, but we don't really know what's going on, and we're certainly not taking doing any documentation. Or or sometimes people are documenting risks, but they're not managing them. Right? We're filling paperwork in, we're doing tick and flick, but are we actually are we actually tackling the big issues? Well, you know, sometimes you see patterns, and people say, "No, I spend my whole time filling forms in," but we're not actually managing the real risks here. Uh, so that tells you something about the industry and, and, and that particular demographic. So they're the sorts of patterns that we look for. Pat, so we look for themes and then we look for patterns that relate to the to those themes. And what would your hope for a, a sample size be from this survey and, and um, you know, what avenues can people take to fill this out? We'll have a link in the show notes uh, directly to this survey. So hopefully if you're listening to this right now, um, you, you'll be able to click that link in the show notes and, and go take the survey. But for other folks that might not hear this, um, uh, I believe Frontline Mind is the uh, well-being sponsor of the upcoming ISSW, right? And, and you all have a, a booth there at ISSW in Bend in October and, and people can take the survey there as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. People can hop onto our website, frontlinemind.com. Uh, we've got a, a link there. You can just point your phone at the screen, take a photo, take it through, take 10 minutes. You can do it on your phone, super easy. Uh, you can come along to ISSW. Uh, there'll be same barcode there. Click it, click on it. Uh, we'll get a, we'll get a bit of a pulse check from all the all the attendees at the uh, at the workshop. Uh, please do fill it in. It'll take you 10 minutes. You know, ideally, we'd have thousands of responses. The more, the merrier. Uh, the reality is the stories that we are hearing from the people we talk to is a lot of people are tired. They're fatigued. Uh, they're talking about burnout. They're talking about exhaustion. They're talking about, I'm just too busy. I'm too tired. Or they've come out at the end of the season and they're just having a downtime and they've gone, I'm done. Uh, so we are hearing stories of fatigue. Um, that tells you something as well. If you can't get buy-in, you can't get people to stick their hand up and say, yeah, look, I'll participate in a, in a survey. I'm invested in improving the industry. Uh, that tells you something about the state of the industry as well. Uh, sometimes we work with organizations and they have, you know, 80% of their staff will say, yeah, I'll participate. It's because they're bought in, they're engaged, uh, and they're, they're, they want to take a personal responsibility for their their well-being, for their resilience, for the for the quality of the experience they have in their workplaces. In other organisations, we get fifteen percent, uh, and and you're almost dragging stories out of people, and they've given up. They're tired, they're exhausted, they're overwhelmed, and they're they're fed up. Uh, so so your response rate tells you something. Uh, so to answer your question, we'd love thousands of stories, uh, and we also know that people are tired. So we're we. 
we're encouraging and, and and hopeful. We'll see where we go with that. Yeah. Well, it seems like you you you've made it quite easy to take this survey. And like I said, I I found a a positive impact from just reflecting on the season from filling that out. So hopefully everybody else that is listening to this will do the same. Um, and currently this is mostly focused at North America, right? Is there, are there some hopes for the future of, of kind of expanding this to the Southern hemisphere or other, uh, arenas within the avalanche industry across the globe? Yeah, it's super easy to, uh, to add in demographics, to, to make a Southern hemisphere, uh, focus, uh, there might be differences between Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere. There might be things that we can learn from the two different domains. Uh, there's, there's differences between North America and Canada. Uh, we know that. Uh, we'll be able to pull apart some of those different patterns, different themes. Uh, and then we might be able to say, well, hey, what's what's going on over there that seems to be working well? Is there something we can learn from, from those uh, organizations there might be certain peak bodies that that have good supports in place and people recognize that and they're having a subtle impact so there's lots we can do with the data uh, our intention is to provide a a brief report back to some of the peak industry bodies so that they can put out uh, information through their through their newsletters um, we're, we're hoping that they take some leadership roles uh, in supporting resilience uh, recovery from some of the uh, traumatic incidents you know as, as gary said we we all know if you're an, if you're an avalanche professional, you all know people that are no longer here, uh, and the impact of some of those events is can be very profound. And, it, and what matters so much are the the sorts of processes that are there to support you, the sort of supports that are in place, uh, and 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 how we can all help each other recover from critical incidents in the business. Uh, and then of course there's leadership. Uh, how 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 are people led from at the level of team? Uh, it could be a, a ski patrol, it could be a, an organisation, it could be forecasters, it could be anything. You know, what's the leadership doing to support its people, uh, and what impact does that have? So um, I'm hoping we get some good insights across all of these different aspects. Awesome. And then Gary, maybe you could speak a little bit. You you guys have some abstracts in that are being reviewed by the ISSW committee, but um, the hope is that the results from this survey are, are um, shown through a presentation at ISSW. Do I have that right? Correct. Um, yeah, we are hoping that um, we'll be able to present these results in a, both a paper and a talk at the ISSW. Uh, we have some other abstracts that kind of are related in terms of how we've managed resiliency in the industry in our own lives. So as an individual, as well as a team member um, through fatalities and other adverse events, um, as well as some on trying to simplify some decision-making strategies um, using what's known as an OODA loop, which I know has been mentioned previously in the Avalanche review also. So um, yeah, we'll see hopefully those abstracts get accepted. And uh, in any case, we'll have that information at a booth at the ISSW. And 
hopefully next year we'll come back on and uh, talk about what we found on the Avalanche Hour podcast also. Yeah, excellent. Anything either of you would like to add before we sign off here? I'd just encourage people um, to, yeah, click on the QR code and uh, take the scan. We'd um, love to hear your stories. Yeah, and thanks for having us on the Avalanche Hour. Uh, you know what a what a terrific initiative. Uh, you know, having conversations about this in a in a professional sense, providing education, providing information. Uh, it's all about stories. It's all about having these conversations. So, what a fantastic initiative! Well done. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for coming on, and um, thanks for putting this scan together. I think this is a huge leap for our industry, um, and I'm excited to see the findings. Thank you, Caleb. All right. Thanks, Caleb. Cheers. Next up, we're going to hear from Kevin Grove, and he's going to tell you all about what to expect at ISSW 2023 in Bend, Oregon. Welcome back to the podcast, Kevin. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Of course, you're a repeat offender. We were just talking about Oh man, it was probably six years ago, six or seven years ago, season one, episode three, you came on the podcast and talked about, uh, well, a lot of things, but but a close call that you had a number of years ago. So welcome back. We're, we're happy to have you. I was hoping you could introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your some of your roles within the snow and avalanche world and, and otherwise. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, I can't believe it's been six or seven years, Caleb. It's been a long time, but uh, time flies. Uh, so, I, yeah, I grew up in Whitefish, Montana. I skied a little bit as a kid, but I played a lot of ball sports um, and then attended college at Montana State in Bozeman, where I really started climbing a lot. And um, I was studying civil engineering, and there were all these folks like Jim Denton, Scott Schmidt, Ed Adams, Ted Lang. Uh, studying snow and avalanches so that I think that planted the initial seed in my mind that avalanches and snow can be quite complex and uh, fascinating. Um, it wasn't until late in college when I was finishing up a master's in chemical engineering in Bozeman that I started backcountry skiing. Uh, I think I took my first avalanche class in Bozeman from Ron Johnson. I think Carl Berkland uh, played a little bit of role in that avalanche class. And then I moved to Bend in 98, where I've been ever since. Um, and I think that's really where I would say I, I uh, gained a curious fascination for avalanches, as you like to say in your podcast. Uh, I started going to ISSWs. I took avalanche level, th level three class. Um, I became involved with the Central Oregon Avalanche Center. Um, which was essentially a website for public observations when I first joined on. And over the course of 10 years, I helped grow that organization with some other core folks into a type one avalanche center. Uh, this year, for the first time, they were issuing full seven day a week avalanche forecasts. So that's pretty exciting. And it's come a long way. Uh, four or five years ago, I started the Ben Snow and Avalanche Workshop, which I spearheaded for the first few years and passed that on. I think, Caleb, you attended that first, very first Ben Saw that we had, gave a talk there. Yeah, um, I've given talks at YSAW, saw, and Ben saw. 
couple of years ago for uh, I had a sabbatical at work and I did a research project embedding quizzes into avalanche forecasts. Uh, I collaborated on that with Paul Daigal. He was doing a very similar project on the at the Utah Avalanche Center. Also uh, talked with Pascal Hagley and Eric Peitch about that project. Um, I've taken a couple AMGA ski guide courses. Uh, so I dabble in a little bit of everything. And my, my day job is a professor at Central Oregon Community College, where I teach engineering physics. I, I created a snow science physics course. And I also teach avalanche courses there. So it's a really cool mixture. And I'm currently co-chairing ISSW along with Zoe Roy. All right. So I've heard you mention ISSW a couple times. For folks that might not know, would you mind just talking about what ISSW is? Yeah, sure. It uh, ISSW exists to facilitate the exchange of ideas and experiences between snow science researchers and practitioners. Um, it it started in the 60s and 70s as some small informal gatherings between snow and avalanche professionals. Uh, there was a an event that Ed LaChapelle organized in Seattle in 1971 uh, for this exchange of ideas. And in 1982 in Bozeman, uh, the first conference was held that was a little bit more formal and um, was the first time that the conference was titled the International Snow Science Workshop. Um, and at that conference, they coined the phrase or the theme of the conference, emerging of theory and practice that exists to this day. Um, so there have been around 20 ISSWs dating back to 1982. Uh, this will be the 40th anniversary. And they now rotate every other year. And they rotate between the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Uh, and with that exception of next year, or, or um, so 2024, Norway will be hosting ISSW. So there will only be a one-year gap between. And that was a COVID uh, issue where the Bend ISSW was originally going to be in 2022. Right. And this is not the first time that the ISSW has been in Central Oregon, right? It was held in Sun River. Uh, many years ago, so it's uh, it's pretty awesome to have ISSW come back to Central Oregon. Yeah, I'm sure it's been quite a bit of work um, to pitch this idea and uh, to see it through um, to fruition here. So kudos to you and Zoe, and and I'm sure there's a lot of other people behind the scenes making this happen. So um, thanks for all the long hours and, and effort that you all have put in. Who would you say ISSW is for? Like if, if people are thinking about attending, they're not really sure if it's for them. Like who's going to get the most out of a conference such as ISSW? Yeah, it's, it's primarily for professionals in the snow and avalanche community, including researchers and practitioners. Um, but I would say also advanced recreational folks are more than welcome to attend and they'll take plenty away to, uh, to uh, them with um, newfound knowledge that they can apply to the backcountry. Quite the networking opportunity as well, I would say. Um, so let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts here, like uh, who's going to be presenting and what 
how many presentations are there going to be? Maybe talk a little bit about the poster um, symposium as well. Um, what can people expect to find there? Sure. So there was a abstract submission deadline in April, late April, and we had over 300 abstracts submitted. So we're super excited at that number. Um, we have a very um, hardworking group, the scientific program committee made up of Eric Peitch, Scott Savage, Simon Troutman, and H.P. Marshall uh, have been looking at those abstracts, working with a group of over 40 volunteers in the snow and avalanche community who have read and scored those abstracts based on rubrics that the science team put together. Um, all of that work is funneling the abstracts into different categories. So folks will be um, put into categories like oral presentations up to 12 minutes long with three minutes of question and answer. There are also shorter lightning oral presentations of 10 minutes and six minutes in length. Uh, that'll have a general Q&A session at the end of those with all of the speakers doing the lightning talks. Um, and then you mentioned the poster presentations as well. Um, and then in addition to all of that, there will be moderated panel conversations going on throughout the conference. So um, just in the last month, all of that's come together. And uh, as of tomorrow, June 1, um, all of those speakers will be notified as to where they will be placed in the conference. Excellent. So each ISSW has kind of distinct themes or themes that some of the presentations and the posters fall into. So what, what are the theme groupings for ISSW 2023? Yeah, so there are 12 themes and um, you can find them all on our website, ISSW2023.com. I'll give you a flavor for um, what you can expect for the themes of the conference. Uh, avalanche education, avalanche forecasting, Avalanche Formation Failure and Dynamics, Avalanche Rescue and Operational Stress Management, uh, Climate Change, Snow Hydrology and Sustainability, Decision Making, Instrumentation and Remote Sensing, Risk Communication, and lastly, Snow and Snowpack Properties. Um, and again, all of those themes uh, are listed on the website and uh, include a few others as well. All right. So let's talk a bit about the logistics. Um, when is ISSW exactly where it is it and how much does it cost? Give us the nitty gritty on the details there. Yeah, it's coming right up uh, October 8th through the 13th at the Riverhouse Conference Center in Bend, Oregon. Um, and the conference runs from Sunday afternoon through Friday, uh, with the conference itself happening Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday, with Wednesday being a day off to go out and explore Bend. Uh, the, there's an early bird registration deadline coming up June 15th, uh, and that's $625. The regular registration is $700. That runs through August 1st. And then uh, $775 runs all the way up through the conference. Um, there are evening events every evening that are a great way to connect and collaborate with all the folks in the industry. 
Sunday, there's a welcome reception that's held at the River House. Uh, Monday night, there's a dinner at Ten Barrel Brewery, which you know well. Uh, Tuesday, there is a Diva Night spearheaded by Katie Warren. That's a celebration of female identifying avalanche professionals and uh, in- including an A3 after party that's open to all in the community. And that's at Crux, which is a really awesome venue. Wednesday night, there's a movie night at the Tower Theater in Bend where we're screening To the Hills and Back, a really awesome movie directed by Mike Quigley. And that'll also include a moderated panel conversation. Uh, Thursday, there's a banquet with keynote uh, panel discussion with four um, either retiring or close to retiring legends in the Avalanche community. So we're really looking forward to that. And, um, yeah, so a whole host of awesome opportunities and fun things to do in and around the conference. And there, you mentioned some volunteer opportunities. I'm sure the the list is growing of people willing to volunteer, but, um, if cost is a bit prohibitive for folks, that's a kind of a nice way to cut down on some of the costs. Is that right? It is. Yep. And Paul Daigle is spearheading the volunteer operation. So um, folks can email Paul. I did just get an email from Paul that I believe our volunteer list is uh, close to full. Um, So awesome. And thanks for all those that have signed up to help volunteer for the conference. And then there's a number of scholarships out there and and maybe, maybe the deadlines have come and gone. I'm not exactly sure, but um, I know some A3 and some other organizations have some, scholarships available for ISSW? A3 has several scholarships that have been awarded um, and um, I think seven full scholarships and four partial scholarships. There, We're also in the middle of awarding uh, four Young Snow Professional Scholarships and those are going out to folks that have been selected from the Science Program Committee. Awesome. So Kevin, for people coming from out of town, um, what's the best kind of logistics for lodging? Can people stay right at the river house there? Or uh, what, what would be your best advice for people looking for lodging in Bend for ISSW? There are lots of lodging options. The river house has lodging, which makes it super convenient to attend the conference. It's located right on the Deschutes River, which is a cool place, a great part of town. There are Lots of other hotels in town, Airbnbs, VRBOs. Uh, There's also camping opportunities. There's plenty of forest service land in the surrounding area. So all kinds of lodging options. Awesome. Kevin, speak maybe briefly about some of the sponsors for this conference. This, you know, like um, it is, it's a significant amount of money for, for many avalanche professionals to, you know, make the travel and pay for the registration. Um, but there's quite a few sponsors that help to offset that. Right. And, and help make this go down. For sure. Yeah. This couldn't happen without the sponsors. And so VEASAN is the title sponsor, uh, safety sponsor for this ISSW is CIL explosives. We have several supporting sponsors, including Arcteryx, GeoPrevent and M and D. Uh, we have a well-being sponsor, Frontline Mind. Uh, Mount Bachelor is our welcome reception sponsor. Uh, 
Uh, happy hour sponsors include A3 and Snowbound Solutions, and Beeson is also a lanyard sponsor. Uh, in addition, we'll also have over 20 exhibitors and exhibit booths at the conference. Well, we're all super excited about ISSW, Kevin, and uh, can't wait to see all the old friends and new friends and, and the whole industry there. Um, anything else that we haven't covered that you wanted to sprinkle in there? I think that wraps it up, Caleb. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, we're all super excited to host ISSW and to have the entire Snow and Avalanche community side slip into Bend uh, and just a great way to connect and collaborate and hug all the community members. So we're really looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, we can't wait. Looking forward to seeing you there, Kevin. Likewise, Caleb. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, don't delay. Go ahead and register for ISSW today and save a little money if you do so before June 15th. Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode, and we hope you enjoyed this whole season of the Avalanche Hour podcast. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe to it on whatever podcast platform you listen to podcasts on. And if you've really been enjoying the show, please, please, please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It just takes a few minutes. You can select however many stars you think we deserve. And then go ahead and give us an actual rating. Let us know what you like about the show um, on that Apple Podcast review. We really appreciate you doing that. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Today's music was provided by Ketza, and you heard the tracks Salutation and Anvil. And you can find more of Ketza's tracks on their website, ketza.uk. Our artwork was provided by Mike T. You demand T. You can find more of Mike's work at his website, www.miketea.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope you have a fantastic summer, and we look forward to seeing all of you in Bend for ISSW in October. Cheers. Cheers.